Hello and welcome to Altamar. I'm Peter Schechter. And I'm Mooney Jensen, once again navigating the rough seas of global politics as we do twice a month. And today, the waters are high in the world of tax evasion and tax avoidance, money laundering, and other financial crimes by the rich and powerful. The Pandora Papers, recently uncovered by the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, which worked with more than 140 media organizations on its biggest ever global investigation. Journalists around the world exposed nearly 12 million, 12 million leaked confidential financial records. The data reveals hidden wealth, tax avoidance, and in some cases, money laundering by some of the world's rich and powerful. And some of it, like money laundering, is clearly illegal. But not all these practices are. And for example, like tax avoidance and hiding information about dozens of mansions around the world is definitely questionable for everybody and for politicians, of course, even unpatriotic. But more than exposing the individuals behind these secret bank accounts, I think, Peter, the Pandora paper showed how blurred the lines are between legal and illegal financial practices. And that's what we'll focus on today. We'll be joined in a minute from Switzerland by Mark Piet, who which so clearly described the illegal gold business on Altamar some time ago. Today, we'll discuss these financial somersaults, but also the darker faced multinational criminal organizations that operate within the same financial system. And of course, as always, the geopolitical implications of these financial crimes. Mooney, just like the predecessor publications, the Panama Papers and the Paradise Papers in 2017, the Pandora Papers exposed these financial maneuverings and corruption at the highest levels. And they show that the gray areas between legal havens and crime is just getting murkier and murkier and murkier. And most importantly, they show that the people most empowered to end these financial crimes are actually the most invested in prolonging it for their own benefit. Many of those exposed in the Pandora Papers are politicians, more than 330 of them from 90 countries, including 35 current and former heads of state, and their lavish lifestyles are made possible by exploiting the laws of the very nations they're supposed to serve. So it's no wonder, Mooney, that people are furious and they feel that they are being ripped off. So in true Altamar fashion, we're going to connect these financial misdealings to politics and democracy itself. As the economist Thomas Piketty noted, even long before the Panama Papers broke, many of these unethical financial maneuvers just enhance the appeal of ethno-nationalist politicians who promise to crack down on elite corruption and you know, it's no wonder the popularity of radical populists from both the left and the right is going to grow as the unethical actions of political leaders, of royalty, of heads of state becomes more widely understood. Absolutely. The political implications are, are really clear, especially the how they feed on populism. But just like the publication of the Panama Papers a few years ago, this led to a flurry of banking regulation the pressure now after the Pandora Papers is on these financial enablers, these financial network lawyers, real estate agents, investment counselors who are not yet fully scrutinized and definitely are not regulated. But, you know, don't sit around and wait for new laws to come to rescue because they really can't be created quickly enough or made comprehensive enough to affect meaningful change. 
And even more concerning is the fact that money laundering is using the exact same group of financial enablers, drug trafficking, gambling, extortion, fake goods, cybercrimes, everything often committed by sophisticated transnational criminal organizations are channeling their profits exactly through the same financial systems that thrive in the shadow. But let's not be super pessimistic, Peter. Although tech has been a facilitator of financial crimes, for example, there's growing evidence that technology itself and public opinion are shifting the balance against the elite use of offshore financial service industry. So it's not only feeding populism, it's also feeding regulation and, and oversight. So let's hear from Thea about the re debate about how new technology may become the center of uncovering and regulating billions of tax evaded dollars. Muni, I'm, I'm with you and we're still reserving some optimism. So the Pandora Papers have shown that those most empowered to end these shady practices won't really do anything about them because it benefits them most. And I agree that laws are neither fast enough nor comprehensive enough to address these issues. But there is one glimmer of hope, and that's technology. Technology has made it so much easier to impose reputational costs onto these politicians by facilitating the dissemination of incredible amounts of data to journalists and to the public. The last five years have revolutionized the possibilities for whistleblowers to maintain anonymity using tools like PGP encryption, allowing them to deliver huge quantities of data from offshore while protecting themselves from retaliation. Five years on, we still don't know the identity of John Doe, who leaked the Panama Papers, nor of the person of people who leaked the Paradise Papers four years ago. That's remarkable in an era of digital surveillance, and it will inevitably encourage more whistleblowing. So these types of financial maneuverings contribute to dangerous levels of economic and political inequality. And with advances in technology, that would allow insiders to remain anonymous while pulling back this veil of secrecy that makes so much of offshore corruption possible. So I think we still have a chance against systemic corruption. And this suggests that whistleblowers are not only emboldened now, but also maybe cooperating internationally to do what laws cannot do, holding accountable the most wealthy and powerful people in the world in the court of public opinion. But what do you think? Will technology save the day or are we doomed to be ripped off by these elite politicians posing as populists? Tweet at Altamar Podcast and let me know. Yeah, that's a great introduction for bringing in our guest right now. Mark Piet is Professor Emeritus of Criminal Law at the University of Basel, Switzerland, and President of the Basel Institute on Governance, a research and policy institute he himself founded to help combat public and private sector abuses of power. His extensive career as a legal expert, a defense lawyer, a judge, a compliance advisor, include prominent roles on the international stage in the fields of money laundering and bribery. He's also researched corruption at FIFA, the International Soccer Organization, and other organizations that have been a key force in developing the Swiss anti-money laundering rules applying to gold refineries. Over the past 17 years, Mark Piet has authored and edited 34 books in the field of economics, and organized crime, corruption, money laundering, and criminal law. Mark, it's such a pleasure to welcome you back on Altamar. Thank you for joining us. Great to see you, Peter. 
Mark, let me just start with the recently published Pandora Papers exposed an elaborate financial operations that are meant to evade or avoid taxes by the world's rich and powerful. What what do you make of all these regulations? And and I guess help us figure out how much of this is irregular and how much of this is downright illegal. That's quite a tough question. You know, the whole thing is not new, what we're seeing in Pandora Papers. When I worked with uh, Joe Stiglitz in Panama after the Panama Papers broke, we saw exactly, exactly the same type of thing. It's always a mix of tax evasion. You have some organized crime. You also have kleptocrats hiding their money. And then you have, let's say, the minor type of issues. Well, somebody trying to disinherit their siblings. It's not nice, but uh, it wouldn't be the macro crime thing. And what do you what do you think are the consequences of this such a lar- large leak as the one that we've seen? Well, I would hope that finally uh, those countries who've been steadfastly refusing to change their laws would um, now start to move. But I'm um, I'm a bit. Uh, in doubts about that. I can tell you maybe a bit later in the show about Switzerland and uh, how uh, the uh, advisors are fighting back at the moment. So I would hope that finally this new leak would help make, uh, make bring about changes. The, the difficulty really is, and I think you pointed to it, what proportion is really illegal? And nobody can tell you that. The, the only question you can ask is, why would people want such a high degree of confidentiality, pay so much for confidentiality? Why, why do they have to hide something? And then I would say like 90% have something to hide. That is really problematic. One of the things that we've been sort of talking about in the show is, I mean, these are the same financial enablers that also help illicit organizations, whether they are traffickers of drugs or traffickers of humans or traffickers of gold or stolen goods. I mean, it's the same financial process, isn't it? Absolutely. You see, it's merely a technique And you can use that technique for all sorts of purposes, creating anonymity. The the technique is relatively simple. It's what we call a structure. And a structure is made up of shell companies, typically British Virgin Islands. You buy them in the Panama Papers with Mossack Fonseca. Here you've got 14 such providers. And then you open bank accounts for these shell companies Cyprus, uh, Malta, and then you have in the middle of the network uh, sitting the real, ba- the real uh, baddie, uh, the enabler, um, who is typically a lawyer, be, be it in uh, Geneva, in London, or maybe in New York, I don't know. And actually, the lawyer is the key, the key figure, not the Mossack Fonseca's and the like. Tell us a little bit more about the lawyer's role and what he does. Yeah, you know, as a lawyer, you can, of course, do traditional work, uh, defense work. 
You can do legal advisory. I'm saying legal advisory, not financial advisory. On the other hand, you can, of course, as a lawyer, also engage in financial transactions. If you do that, though, you are like a bank or an insurance company subject to anti-money laundering legislation. So if you're a traditional lawyer, you have privilege. If you are a financial operator, you're subject to money laundering legislation. And that's uh, sort of the world standard. In between, there is a gray zone, and that's where um, the people that we're encountering here are really moving. They're opening the structure, and then they're leaving it to somebody else to use it. So the, the money is shifted around by somebody else, but the, the lawyer has opened the structure and there's no way getting into that black box, if you want, because they uh, have their uh, legal privilege. So, Mark, you're an expert on criminal law and criminology, and you've talked extensively about the gold business, about FIFA, and also the way drug trafficking and terrorism are financed. And you talk about the structure. What is the link between money laundering and organized crime? Yeah, Muni, this is really a very close link. I mean, if you go back to 1988, the Vienna Convention, that was when uh, money laundering as a concept was for the first time put into an international treaty. It was all about drugs and organized crime, mafia, if you want. And later on, of course, one broadened it out a bit, widened the concept and to also encompass activities like trafficking in human beings, extortion, fraud, and so on. So it's very typically money laundering is something that is very close to organized crime, except that, of course, over time, most everybody engaged in criminal activities is using those techniques that I've talked about. We've heard a lot lately about South Dakota. It was in the headlines everywhere. Suddenly, South <laughs> Dakota is one of, yeah. the, of the fiscal paradises. Uh, but there's also the... It's, ama it's amazing. Who, who would know this? I mean, Well, I, you're listening no to idea. the Swiss. Yes. Saying, oh, those in South Dakota, they're worse than we are. <laughs> Imagine that. So you've, been, you've also talked about, and we'll talk about Switzerland in a minute, but all these states and, and countries and islands make money from enabling the hiding of wealth. And, and we've noticed that more and more have been cropping up and they seem to be growing all the time. What are some of the ways that they, they can be stopped? Well, I would know a few, a few ways, but you know, this, before I say, uh, go into that, there's something really amazing. Governments could very easily stop it. Yeah. But it's the contrary is the case. If you look at you mentioned South Dakota. In the U.S., you also co could go to Delaware, Utah. There are many places where you get these kind of services. But go to France. They will send you to Monaco. Go to Spain. You have Andorra. Italy, you have San Marino. If you want to go into Germany, Swiss Switzerland, or Austria, they send you to Liechtenstein. And the EU has Malta, Cyprus, Luxembourg. So my hunch is everybody has their little back door where they can actually escape into these offshore centers. 
and nobody is seriously concerned in uh, nobody's really interested in closing them and well you could ask yourself why but uh, one is one um, explanation could be if you have a um, secret service operation and you need to shift money somewhere and you don't want everybody to know it, well, that's where you need these places. The other thing is, if you're a minister, apparently you need your little castle somewhere and uh, you don't want to tell people where you got the money from. No, I'm joking, but I think you can do things against them. You could actually simply close those offshore centers by saying um, they are no longer uh, viable business uh, centers. You know, the U.S. called that a primary money laundering concern. And then you're dead you, as, a, as a financial center if you put on, 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 that, on that list. The alternative is you would be more insistent on finding out who are beneficial owners. Joe Stiglitz and I suggested to Panama, well, have a company registered that has real names in it, not just the gardener, but has the has the not the gardener of Mossack Fonseca, but uh, put the name of the beneficial owner, the person who is really fully in control behind the gardener, put that name into the registry. Well, you know, you bet what happened. We were kicked out. Uh, of the country. Mark, the, you know, maybe the largest quote unquote financial center or haven is after all your own country, Switzerland. And when we spoke about the illegal gold business, you mentioned that Switzerland's financial secrecy laws were indeed one of the weak links in the money laundering chain. And you've, I know you've spoken publicly about this. Where are Swiss banks and right today? Where are the Swiss laws and why are people not being held more accountable in Switzerland. Yeah, well, you're right pointing out, I'm, I'm not exactly a very popular person here, you can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, jokes aside, there, there is a tradition of strong banking secrecy, and that's still very much alive, even though um, in the meantime, uh, banks abroad have to exchange, or Swiss banks also have to exchange with other um, authorities of foreign authorities who is keeping a bank account and uh, how much is on that bank account but there's still a strong banking secrecy and i must admit switzerland has been very very slow in granting mutual legal assistance in, uh, in criminal matters but also in civil matters it's really difficult you wait for years to get um that information. And finally, the touchiest point is that advisors, and here we're talking especially about lawyers, they are working in this gray, gray zone between traditional legal work and financial operation or operators. And these, um, I would call them enablers, they're building the structures and they're hiding them behind their legal privilege. And that was really the difficulty. Switzerland tried to change it. The government suggested, let's uh, subject these people to the anti-money laundering legislation. And the lobbyists won in parliament 
and they aborted that legislation. And how is it that banks continue to be so tremendously involved? I mean, you know, as I read the banks in Switzerland and the United States and the UK, you know, have been part of these tremendous money laundering scams. And isn't there regulation now, international regulation now to sort of stop this illegal behavior? And why isn't that regulation working? Well, um, I think the situation of banks is very ambiguous. They are subject to tremendous uh, amounts of regulation. It costs them an awful lot to, do, to be compliant. And this is also the reason why they don't like this uh, dirt competition of enablers. Yeah? They, the banks are actually asking for regulation of enablers. What I find strange is that the banks were not strong enough to actually uh, overcome the critique of those uh, lobbyists. And of course, that's where I think you ask yourself, are they really serious or are they just making a show? Because they themselves, of course, are also living from the same kind of client. They want the client. They don't want to give, allow the, the, uh, their, their opponents, their competitors to have the client. And Mark, earlier in the show, I talked a bit about how technology and specifically systems like PGP encryption could allow for more whistleblowers to come forward and expose corruption at these highest levels. Is that true? And, and what have you seen in recent years with such of these you know, technological advances that could allow whistleblowers to thrive? You see, in um, large parts of the world, especially Europe, Whistleblowing is still a very, very risky business. And um, much depends that you have systems of whistleblowing that allow you to come in anonymously. So whatever you have as technology that allows you to denounce wrongdoing anonymously. I'm not a specialist of the uh, technological side, but um, I do know if you can come in anonymously, that is really helpful because as soon as the whistleblower is exposed, that is a high-risk situation. It might be a bit different in the U.S. where you possibly could earn yourself a compensation as a whistleblower. Yeah, you could, you could get part of the fine, but that's not the way it is in the rest of the world. Uh, the U.S. is pretty unique here. So coming back to your question, I think it is all these new technologies that allow to keep the whistleblower confidential. They are what you need. And besides, you know, it's not just the uh, authorities that need these whistleblowers. It's also the company. It's a company interest to know what's going wrong in your, in your, within your company. Mark, let's talk politics for a little bit. So it used to be that strong governments with solid institutions were less vulnerable to cl criminal financial activity than those like weaker democracies, so to speak. But evidence and of, of all this corruption and money laundering in developed countries with democratic values are starting to demonstrate the contrary. Is everyone more exposed today, even with more oversight? Is there a, no longer a correlation between democracy and money laundering? Well, that's a really uh, a difficult question. You see, for me, what we, are, what we are experiencing here with Pandora Papers, it sort of happens on three levels. You have the victims in uh, 
and they are still mostly in failed states or failing states. You would have uh, victims to kleptocracy or go to Congo where mining rights are given against corruption and then the money, of course, leaves. And in a first stage, it typically goes to an offshore center, financial centers, enabling that theft and, and laundering the money. And here is possibly the place where you know, the Caribbean countries come in or where possibly also South Dakota fits in. But my big but is the um, real organized, the, the, uh, they are found in the traditional financial centers, Geneva, London, New York. So if you look at those three levels, you have the traditional victim, victim country that is typically still suffering but it goes very much into the center of our democracies. You're perfectly right. Mark, how about the link between all this and populism? People are angry. There's indignation all over the world when people are being ripped off by corrupt leaders and uh, by, the, by the elites. It's really not surprising that voters and citizens are now gravitating to these irresponsible uh, populists. And what do you kind of take out of that, out of that correlation? I think I have to tell you an anecdote on that one. I was sitting in the World Economic Forum on a podium. Next to me was the then freshly elected Minister of Justice of Brazil. And I said to them, look, those populists, they, this is a terrible situation. People get fed up. They distrust regular politicians because they think politicians steal. Then they turn to populists who say, we will promise you to get rid of corruption. And then in the end, they are landed with people who themselves are on the take. And here, I mean, Bolsonaro of Brazil is one example. Uh, in a way, I uh, witnessed um, Joe Stiglitz saying Trump was the king of tax evaders in the uh, uh, European Parliament. So I think, uh, and my anecdote goes that the minister sitting next to me, the Brazilian Minister of Justice, he's, he, um, when, when I mentioned this in the abstract, he was absolutely shocked. And he said, whom are you talking about? And I said, well, uh, maybe uh, Berlusconi. And he was so relieved that he, <laughs> Into the public television, uh, into the world television, he said, oh, yes, of course, Berlusconi, yes, you've got a point there. I mean, <laughs> that definitely, but a clever pivot. I just wanted to ask, uh, we're almost out of time, but I wanted to ask if you had the opportunity to write the leaders of a number of countries, a memo that had only two points, what would you say are the most important things that governments could do to try to begin to curtail and restrict and put some safeguards into the system so that we don't get this constant sense of corruption and hiding that we've seen in the last couple of, of weeks through the, through the Pandora Papers? Well, on a technical level, it's relatively easy. I see two points. One is 
we need to know who are the beneficial owners of companies and account holders. At least authorities have to be able to uncover that to run um, prosecutions. The other point would be we have to make sure that advisors and lawyers who are active as financial operators are subject to anti-money laundering legislation. Those are two, two very technical things. There is a political element, the Financial Action Task Force on Money Laundering, this international watchdog body, they are there to really bully countries into doing something finally. And that's really essential. The only problem is they're eminently political. So if countries don't like what they are suggesting, we're not going very far. Mark Piath, thank you again for joining us on Altamar. A great and fascinating discussion about what's happening in the world in behind the veil and under the curtain. A great pleasure. Thank you very much. Peter, I have two concerns after this great interview and the, the great explanations by Mark. One is, so Panama Papers and now the Pandora Papers, a lot of leaks in between. It seems like every time we are less surprised. So I think the world is getting jaded and kind of accustomed to the fact that these things happen and that they're part of daily life. So there's less outrage. And the second is obviously the relationship with populism. And I think that that is one of the biggest concerns of global democracy right now. So even with all of these explanations and with Thea's uh, take on, on, on technology, I, I'm, I ended up kind of very concerned that this has not become the, the hot topic it needs to be. I'm one of those who are exactly what you described, Muni. I'm just not surprised. It doesn't seem to me particularly surprising that a royal from the Middle East has a bunch of houses or that presidents of countries have, you know, club memberships or yachts and things like that. So to me, it seems a little naive to be so surprised by all this. My my concern is that in individual countries, this just fans the flame of this anti-elite, that elites who are supposedly smart enough or educated enough to hide their money shouldn't be the people who are leading our countries. And so I, I, to me, it just seems very, it worsens our democracy. And uh, as this information gets leaked out, people are become more jaded, more cynical, and, uh, you know, more anti-democracy. And just to add, I mean, I, I'm usually not the optimist, but I think technology does really have the opportunity to anonymously to expose these corruptions and these financial maneuverings. And I mean, I think that's something to to explore more. And, and Mark was mentioning, you know, the difference between the U.S. and Europe. And I think that that, that is an opportunity to, to end this corruption in the long term. We'll see. I mean, I, I think uh, technology, I've never been a believer that technology is the panacea to things. So I, people will find a way around it if they want to hide their money. I'm going to have the last word on that because we're surprise, out of time. Surprise, surprise. Remember that you can listen to Altamar wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. See you next time. Mm-hmm.